So let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel 4 and beginning in verse 5. And the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, <coughs> Rechav and Ba'anah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house, as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechav and Ba'anah's brother escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. <clears throat> and the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Baanah's brother, the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand to remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> well, last time we started this chapter and looked at the first few verses and, uh, if you will, sat down and dwelt on it a little bit because the author is giving us a bunch of background information regarding Ishbosheth's murder. And he goes out of his way, you might say, to spell out the heritage of these two assassins. And we'll see it even here in this section tonight. Now, there's certainly debate, but I lean toward the view that um, though they were Benjamites and related to Saul, it is certainly possible that Saul's sin regarding the Gibeonites, who also lived in Beeroth and the surrounding area, um, and so Saul killing them is factoring into some of their zeal to murder Saul's son. Now the author, whether it's Gad or Nathan, whoever it was that God used, uh, emphasizes this language of Saul's son. We see it in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 4, and we'll see it again tonight in verse 8. And the reason why he is doing this is to remind us of God's judgment on Saul. Now I was reflecting here this past week and realized I never read it, so let's read it again here briefly. Let's come back to 1 Samuel 13 and just refresh our memory here again of God's judgment for Saul's sin. Now recall he had just been ruling for a couple years when he did this. And so in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13, it says, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over, all, uh, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. So no kingdom, no descendants, no uh, line of descent of one king to the next from Saul's family. 
And then it continues, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. <clears throat> and so not Jonathan, obviously he is now dead, not Ishbosheth, not Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. None of them will sit on the throne, at least not for more than a couple years, like Ishbosheth, and it's because of Saul's sin. Instead, God is going to put a man after his own heart on the throne, and of course that is David. And so with the author using this language of Saul's son, he is highlighting and reminding us of this point. So, basically, he is telling us why David's rivals stopped rebelling. Mephibosheth is too young, and he is lame, and now Ishbosheth is murdered. And so, we come to verse 5. Then the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Baanah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. All right, now, notice for the second time, the author here is giving us the full heritage of these two men. And he certainly didn't need to do that. And once is sufficient, but he does it. And we'll see it again in verse 9. And so why is he doing this? Well, it's similar to us when we talk about assassins in our own country. We say John Wilkes Booth or Lee Harvey Oswald. We have a fuller heritage given to these men. It's the same idea. Now, um, this is why then we spent some extra time last time looking at it. Now, it tells us that these men uh, set out from where? From Beeroth, presumably, possibly. Um, but they are captains in Ishbosheth's army, so maybe they were somewhere else. Maybe they weren't that far from Mahanaim. We don't know for sure. But it says they, they set out and they arrived at noon. So here's where I want you to uh, use the map just a moment. And uh, the land of the 12 tribes map here, the ones we've been using, probably be uh, best. And uh, you recall from last time that Beeroth is near Bethel. And so you find Bethel north of Jerusalem there in the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth was maybe a mile or so um, south of Bethel. And so if that's where they left, they would go uh, eastward, cross the Jordan River, and then north and east up to Mahanaim, you see there along the Jabbok River. It's about 35 miles as the crow flies, um, certainly longer than that to go by land. Um, if they do come from Beeroth, then you figure they probably took uh, more than a day to get there. But when they do get there, it says they arrive in the heat of the day. So this is roughly 10 to 2, 11 to 3 kind of time frame uh, during the day. Now around here, we don't worry about the heat of the day quite so much compared to, say, the deep, deep south or the, the desert southwest or something like that. Uh, but even in the summertime, of course, it can get rather warm around here. It can get into the 90s, and especially if the humidity is up and so forth. Uh, in other cultures, like Hispanic cultures, uh, they'll take time off during this time of the day. They get up earlier while it's cooler and work, and then when it's hot, they rest, they eat, they take a nap, and so on, and then work again <clears throat> later in the afternoon. So this 
appears to be <coughs> why Ishbosheth is in his bedroom on his bed. Um, it doesn't highlight that he's being lazy or something like that, but just this is the time of day to take rest. What it may highlight is the time of the year, um, but he is resting in his house at this time. Now, it says house here. Maybe we should understand this as a palace of sorts. Um, but here's where he is in Mahanaim. So verse 6 then. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Baana's brother escaped. Obviously, it was easy access. And note it says here that they were getting wheat. And the way it's worded uh, suggests, as the New King James says, that they were pretending to get wheat. Maybe they had disguises on. Maybe they lied about it. Uh, did they uh, pretend to come? Like, remember with Joseph, people came to Joseph to buy wheat because of the famine. Maybe something like that was going on. Was it harvest time? And they're coming in and saying, hey, we're helping the king. And, and so they pretend to bring extra into the house. Uh, were they acting like a servant or dressing up like a servant, helping to make supper? We're, we don't know. But... They come all the way into the house, into his bedroom, and they stab Ishbosheth in the stomach. And so they snuck in, presumably, while he's sleeping. You would think he would have cried out for help otherwise, uh, but there's no indication whatsoever of that. And, um, and then they escape. Now, the Septuagint, when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, they added a bit of information here, saying that the bodyguard was sleeping too. They were at harvest time gathering wheat. Maybe this is why they're tired. We don't know uh, for sure. So what the text clearly emphasizes is their success. So notice then verse 7. <clears throat> for when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. Now, obviously, the beginning of verse 7 repeats some of what we saw there in verse 6, but it does add some details, especially in the second half of the verse. It repeats how they entered the house. Maybe it's just how easy it was. It was so amazing. That's why he says it again, coming all the way into the bedroom. And this time, it doesn't merely say they stabbed him, but it says that he died. Certainly, we can presume that from the previous verse, but it says it specifically. And now it says that they beheaded him and they took his head. Now, why would they do this? Well, to cut off the hand, uh, they didn't have an FBI database to do fingerprinting back 3,000 years ago. Um, and just to merely take um, some item of Mishbosheth may not be convincing. And remember, David had Saul's crown and armband already, so maybe there weren't royal items to show that they took them from Ishbosheth. Um, but obviously, they take his head, and this would clearly identify uh, the man that they killed, would verify their story, and so on. And so they take his head, and they escape through the plain all night. So, again, if you look at your maps, uh, how should we understand this? So let me bring in verse, the first part of verse 8. It says, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. So you come from Ahanaim, and look where Hebron is, south of Jerusalem and Benjamin, uh, Bethlehem. Okay. It's at least 50 to 55 miles 
straight, but maybe as much as 80 miles to go over land, crossing mountains in the valley and, and uh, the Jordan River. Um, but it says here about the plain. Your translation may say it a little differently. The Hebrew word is Arabah. And the Arabah, if you look at that mountain range that runs right up north and south through Jerusalem and Bethlehem and such, the Arabah was what was east of that toward the Dead Sea. Um, so um, I suppose it's possible they came all the way around the Dead Sea, but more likely uh, they came down the Jordan Valley. Uh, some have argued, if you see on the, uh, the east side of the Jordan, you see where Gad is and Jotzer with the question mark, and you see a little bit of a ridge there. Maybe they went on the east side of that. But whatever the case, they eventually cross the Jordan and come to Hebron, most likely, and probably crossing near Jericho. Um, but notice they're, they're coming with somebody's head, and they weren't going to wait around for the head to bleed out. Uh, they were in his bedroom. It's the middle of the day. They could easily be, be caught. And so somehow they got out of there without somebody stopping them. Uh, they put it in a bag, wrap it up, put it in a box. Uh, we don't know. Um, maybe they took this blood-soaked head and put it under cover. It might be really hot, but who knows how, how all the details worked out. But they go from approximately noontime until dark, and then they go through the night. And certainly no one would see them at that point. Um, did they walk? Did they run? Did they have a donkey? Remember, Rahab's name means rider, so possibly they were on a horse or a donkey. Um, again, details were not given. But they come through the night to David. And so the rest of verse 8 they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. And so Rechab and Bana <coughs> come to David. And obviously they expect David to be pleased with what they did. Now, <coughs> like the man in chapter 1 who was reporting on Saul's death, so now these men come and expect David to give some kind of reward and to praise them. So they show David Ishbosheth's head. And they verify that David's rival is dead. But notice again how it's worded. It says here about the son of Saul, right? The head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So, like we saw last time in verses 1, 2, and 4, here it is again. And so again, we are reminded, this is not merely an identifier, Ishbosheth is Saul's son, but it's reminding us that no son of Saul would sit on the throne. How can Ishbosheth do it any longer with the head here now with David in Hebron? And so Ishbosheth, as we saw earlier, only ruled for two years. His chief of the army defected, and now two of his captains murder him. All this is because of Saul's sin. And so as the saying goes, your sin will find you out. And here we see that in this way. For Ishbosheth's sin, it was roughly two years. For Saul's sin, okay, roughly 45 years. Sometimes our sin isn't uh, judged immediately, but eventually it will be. And this is to the benefit of David, 
And so they say things to that regard. Now, let me pause here and reflect on their motivations. Uh, it is possible that these two men are merely wanting a good position in David's army. They're opportunistic. They see the writing on the wall with Ishbosheth, And so they say, okay, enough of this guy. We're, we're going to be in, in bad straits if we keep with him. And so we're going to leave and uh, join with David. Um, maybe that's all it is. But as I suggested to you last week, um, if it is true that the sons of Ramon in Barry Roth were upset with Saul for his murder of the Gibeonites, it very well could be that they were part of Israel who wanted David as their king from the beginning. And if you turn back just briefly, chapter 3, verse 17, remember these words of Abner to the elders of Israel, in time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. It's possible that these two men, or at least their father Ramon, voiced this, uh, this desire. And if they're upset that it, uh, Abner established Ishbosheth as king, if they're upset with what Saul did with the Beerothites, uh, maybe it's just simply they saw their opportunity to take out uh, David's, or excuse me, Saul's son here and to help establish David. Okay. Maybe it's just they're trying to get ahead, but uh, I'm inclined to think, as I mentioned last time, that there's vengeance involved here on their part. Um, if you turn to chapter 21, let me just, uh, call our attention to this again. I, we read the longer section last night, but let me highlight, or last week, let me uh, highlight verse 6. Okay. They come to David, the Gibeonites do, and talk about Saul's sin, and they want vengeance. And so in verse 6, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. And so maybe they're um, more or less doing this before David does. But you see the difference. David did it justly. These men don't. Certainly more to say in chapter 21. <clears throat> now, as we come back here to verse 8, note there, uh, can you say, buttering up of David? Again, maybe they meant it. Maybe they really wanted David as king, uh, but they speak favorably uh, to him. They say about Saul being David's enemy, and surely he was. Chased David for up to 10 years. Um, quite possibly these two men were part of that as soldiers in Saul's army and later Ishbosheth's. Um, again, we don't know for sure, but certainly a possibility. Maybe they were the ones seeking to kill David, but now uh, they turn it around and they're trying to help him. Maybe they thought, hey, if Abner can do something like that, we'll do the same. But notice now their theology. Hey, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day. Saul and his descendants. Yahweh has avenged my Lord, they say. All right, let me pause and first uh, point out the pronoun. It says, my Lord. Uh, what does that communicate to us? There are two men there. Well, probably it means that one of them is speaking. And, and so both of them are standing there and one of them speaks. Uh, notice back in verse 2 that Ba'anah is listed before Rechab suggesting to us that Ba'ana was the older of the two. 
But in the rest of the chapter, see here verse 5, Rechab is mentioned first. Again in verse 6. And now here. Is that an indication that Rechab is the one who actually pulled the trigger, so to speak? Was Baanah guarding and Rechab is the one stabbing in the stomach? Is it Rechab now who is doing the speaking and Baanah is standing there? We don't know for sure, but it certainly is suggestive of that, isn't it? And so that's probably why it says my rather than our. Um, <clears throat> maybe Rechab is the one who really wanted to do this and Baanah was along for the ride or something. Um, again, we don't know. But they mention about how Yahweh took vengeance on Saul. Certainly that was done by the Philistines. And Yahweh now takes vengeance on Saul's son by them. And there's no remorse on their part. They are thinking they did God's will. And as I've said at other times, we can justify anything with the scriptures. And here they are doing the same thing. They broke the sixth commandment, and yet we're doing God's will. Now, ultimately, they were doing God's will, but that doesn't justify how they went about doing it. In fact, I think we need to see the author telling us they were a bunch of cowards. They don't kill Ishbosheth in front of everyone, they do it while he's sleeping. Furthermore, if they truly were on David's side, why didn't they leave Saul's army? Why didn't they leave Ishbosheth's army to join David? Remember, David had his 600 men while he was running from Saul, and, and certainly David was established in Hebron. Why didn't they go then? I, I suppose you could argue this might reflect poorly on their father and bear wrath and have problems and so forth, and I, I don't know text doesn't give us all these details but I think we should understand the author to be telling us these guys were a bunch of cowards they killed a man in his sleep how is that virtuous and so they're seeking a reward from David but they have blood on their hands sin in their heart God is on their lips they're using God for their own benefit now <clears throat> Let me pause here and just simply say this. It is easy for us to condemn these men, and we should. But haven't we done something similar? Oh, we might not pull out a sword and stab somebody in the stomach. But we have stabbed people in the back to try to impress someone else, haven't we? Let's not ignore ourselves as we observe these things. Well, verse 9, we continue. But David answered Rechab and Baanah his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Pause here in the sentence. Uh, obviously, David is now responding to these two men. <clears throat> and for the third time now, we have their full name, their full heritage, right? John Wilkes Booth ideas. Um, <clears throat> Now, hearing their full name from David may have encouraged them initially, raised their hopes. David then swears to the Lord and takes a vow. It still sounds somewhat promising. And then things take a turn in a different direction. And basically, David says, 
I didn't need your help. I don't need anybody's help to be established as king because God is on my side. God's established me. He is leading me here in this way. He's delivered me from all my adversaries before. Why do I need your help now? So uh, reading from 1 Samuel 26, this is when uh, David was stuck in the cave and remember Saul comes in to relieve himself and David goes out and says, hey, he cut off part of his robe and so on. And remember these words of David in verse 24. Indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And of course, God just did in that setting. And he did in other times. And now David is referencing that and saying, look, I don't need you guys to go around murdering people just to help me to sit on the throne. God's going to do it for me. And so notice then that God does not advocate using evil to accomplish good things. Sounds very much like what we saw this morning in Romans 3 verse 8. Hey, let us do evil, the good may result. Well, no, not at all. The murder of Abner. And now Ishbosheth, <clears throat> it's not right. It did help establish David as king, but that's not the right way of going about it. The ends do not justify the means and so whether we're talking about lying about trump and staging january 6th or creating a virus and a vaccine to reduce world population or as we saw in the video in sunday school most recently okay, telling people not to worship so that you can love your neighbor or the other video we watched recently taking money from liberals to grow the church and even reworking the gospel to reach the culture. I mean, we, we don't do evil things for good to result. Okay, whatever the situation may be. And here, obviously, we see this one. And so it ties in with some of what we saw this morning. All right, well, David continues here then in verse 10. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him. <coughs> excuse me, and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Well, obviously, this is referring to chapter 1 in the Amalekite. Let's turn back there just a moment, refresh our memory here a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> note especially verses 13 and following. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an, Amalek, uh, of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so David is obviously making reference to this. Had these two men heard of this situation? We don't know. They certainly know now. And so in verse 11 now, back in chapter 4, David continues, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? 
All right. Well, let me first make this comment. David's words here in verse 11, some people have tried to say, proves one way or the other about the Amalekite in chapter 1. Remember the questions we had? Was he just making up a story? Did it actually uh, did he actually do it? If so, how does it fit with the end of 1 Samuel? We might remember some of those things. Um, it's subjects, su- suggestive here that David believed the Amalekite actually did kill Saul and to put Saul out of his misery and uh, prevent the Philistines from mistreating Saul. He was helping a dying man kill himself. Well, that's a wrong thing to do, but... Compared to killing someone on his bed while he's sleeping, that was far more righteous than what these two men did. Notice how much more, note how much worse it was for these men. Ishbosheth is even righteous, he says. Now, this does not mean that Ishbosheth was perfect. And David's not talking about how Ishbosheth was continuing the sin of Saul, sitting on the throne unjustly. He's not addressing those issues. What he is saying here is that this man died unjustly. It didn't happen in the midst of battle. It didn't happen because of a self-defense kind of scenario. It didn't happen by a lawful court executing him for some crime. No. Some vigilantes came in and stabbed him in the stomach and cut off his head and thought they did the right thing. This man was righteous in that sense. And that's what David is emphasizing. Now notice also what we read in chapter 1. That Amalekite killed Yahweh's anointed. But here, Ishbosheth is not Yahweh's anointed. David doesn't say it that way because, of course, he wasn't. Judgment on Saul's house again is intimated by how this is worded. So Rechab and Baanah then prove their guilt by their own words, just like the Amalekite in chapter 1. And of course, they have the evidence of Ishbosheth's head. And so David has every just reason to execute these murderers. One last thing about the verse. As we've seen Paul do in Romans 3, you can do the same thing in Hebrew. You can ask a question with an intended answer given. It's not always done. Sometimes it is. Here it is. And the assumed answer is yes. Pretty straightforward. Shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? Yes. And so verse 12. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. All right, so again, just like chapter 1, David now here has his soldiers render justice against these men. And notice how they desecrate the bodies. They cut off the hands that killed Ishbosheth and carried his head. They cut off the feet that traveled to Mahanaim and now here to Hebron. And their bodies then are hung as a curse. Now, let me just read briefly this Deuteronomy 21. You might remember these verses in relation to Jesus. And uh, verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain overnight on the tree. We shall surely bury him that day and so forth. Now, presumably David did that. We're not told. But what we are told is they were hung up as a curse, a curse on them. So David does this according to God's word. It's also common in the ancient world to do this, to hang up bodies, to, to defame the dead, even to dismember like this by cutting off hands or, or feet or heads or whatever it is. And so David is not doing anything unusual, though from our vantage point we might say this was excessive. Okay. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> let me try to bring things together here in this way. Let me first by uh, first read here from Dr. Davis and... <clears throat> his words he says i would imagine david felt compelled to give the corpses of baana and Rekha brief billboard status he must show that the repudiated that he repudiated the deed for as with abner's death there would be those in the northern tribes especially saul's benjamin who would say the whole thing smelled to high heaven that it was too convenient for david and that he was obviously the mastermind behind it all even the execution wouldn't necessarily quiet the skeptics. They would only respond that this is the way politicians work. They hire hitmen with the promise of reward, then knock off their hirelings to make themselves look clean. The fact that David had no need of Baana and Rechab's deed, since Saul's regime was already at its last gasp, would carry no weight at all for them, for such people do not stop to reason when their blood is boiling. Now, the text does not go on and say any of these things, but it certainly is reasonable. In light of what we saw in verse 1 and their response to the murder of Abner, it is quite possible. As we saw in the last chapter, David going way out of his way to prove his innocence. Well, he's doing something similar to here. So even though the text doesn't give us a lot of information, I think it is very fair for us to assume that something like this was uh, a possibility, and David is trying to curb these false rumors. And so like David did with Abner, like David did with Saul in chapter 1, David is making clear to everyone he had nothing to do with Ishbosheth's execution. As David killed the Amalekite and he cursed Joab, so now he kills these two men. He shamed them. Even in death, David is innocent. David is not unjust. Now let me pause and say this. We're sitting here in these nice padded pews 3,000 years later, and we know the end of the story. But if you're in the middle of this, you can understand why someone would need to defend themselves. If people are spreading lies and rumors or at least wondering and speculating, you can understand the need for David to go out of his way and um, say, look, I, I had nothing to do with this. So by desecrating their bodies, hanging them up as a curse, that's part of why he does what he is doing. He's not being cruel or malicious or whatever. He's saying, I had nothing to do with this. And so I'm cutting off the body parts that committed this crime. And I'm going to uh, dishonor them in death. 
Notice also this point. David is warning everyone that worldly ways to advance his kingdom would not be tolerated. Okay. In, in essence, David is saying, hey, that's not how we do things around here. He did that in chapter 1. He does it again here. He even did it with Joab, though we may wish he would have done a little more, but he, he cursed him regardless. Saul knocked off his rivals, or at least attempted to. Saul acted like the kings of the world, but David is not going to do that. These two men at least work for Saul's son, if not work for Saul. And so maybe they figured this was just the way it was, but David's like, no, 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 we're not doing it this way. It's not just an Amalekite that can be put to death, but a fellow Israelite, and at least by extension, a relative of Saul. David is not going to put up with this kind of behavior in his kingdom. He doesn't need help to establish his throne, and he is not going to put up with this injustice. And so, like Abner, Ishbosheth then is buried with honor. It doesn't say much here. We saw at the end of chapter 3 all this information about what David did with Abner. But it very well could have been here too. There may have been some funeral procession with the head of Ishbosheth going to Abner's tomb and David following behind and telling everybody to mourn and all these things like we saw in chapter 3. Again, we're not told. We're speculating. But it's certainly not out of the question. David isn't going out of his way to show that he did not kill Abner and he didn't have anything to do with Ishbosheth's or Saul's deaths. Okay. So whether it was a murder in his backyard by his own nephew, <laughs> or these of Saul and Ishbosheth, okay, David had no part in it. And so as I've talked about here recently, we see this theme again. David is innocent. David is not the bad guy. And as I emphasized here in chapter 3, Sometimes we have to politic for a good end. Sometimes we have to defend ourselves. Now, 95% of the time or more, when we defend ourselves, it's because we're just being selfish and sinful. 95% probably percent of the time, when people politic, it's for selfish and evil ends. But there is a time and a place to do it, and David does. He is innocent. And he is much better than Saul. He is a much better king than Ishbosheth. He is seeking to establish a society based on God's law and God's ways. We can go back to 1 Samuel to see this. Some of the ways David handled things. <clears throat> Remember when he killed the Amalekites and he sent the spoil to different places. Remember when the people who were too tired to continue in the fight, he didn't punish them in some way? Right? David is a different kind of king. The way he handled Saul's death, Abner's death, now Ishbosheth's death, he is not a king like the nations. Is he perfect? Of course not. But he's a lot better than Saul. Do you see the, the foil as I talked about this morning? David is different, and 
Clearly, rulers rule differently. Saul ruled like the world. David is seeking, imperfectly, to rule according to God's word. The same can be said even down to today. Whether we're thinking of presidents or kings around the world or countries and nations or whatever. And as we look at our own country, the founding fathers sought to establish a society based on God's law. Okay. Did they do it perfectly? Of course they did not. But you look at the things they tried to implement from God's word and from natural law, it was far better than most any other culture that had ever existed. A society based on God's law, the separation of powers, individual responsibility, law is king, not the king is law, okay, limited government, so on and so on and so on. And all these were uh, codified in our founding documents and they were tried to be implemented and so on again imperfectly. But as imperfect as it was, it was far better than anything else. As imperfect as David has been, it was far better than Saul or any of the other nations surrounding Israel. And so as we consider any other system of governance today, okay, or in the centuries preceding, whether it's a feudal system or a monarchy or a bare democracy, or today with all the various forms of Marxism, whether it's communism or national socialism or democratic socialism or fascism, they all come from the same root. Uh, whether it's the Muslim theocracy with the caliphate and Sharia law, as you consider these other forms of rule, none of them are anywhere close to what the founding fathers sought to do in our culture two, three, four hundred years ago. A representative republic is best. It's what scripture talks about. Remember, the monarchy here was God's judgment on Israel. And so I, I, I developed this point to some degree here because it's a new idea, though it's something we have seen over these uh, verses and chapters. But we are living in a society that is constantly telling us how evil the founding fathers were and how terrible the system is in our country and we need to get rid of it and we need to replace it with something else well they're not going to replace it with anything better what we need to do is to rediscover the biblical principles for the founding of our nation and try to implement them better that's the best way of handling it and so when David fails he doesn't set up a new system he repents of his sin and he takes God's judgment that was deserving. Okay, unfortunately, we're not listening to that wisdom in our culture today. So, <clears throat> we see David proving his innocence. We see David establishing a society based on God's law by how he handles this situation. And, once again, we see that God is accomplishing his purposes for David. God is establishing David as king, even using evil actions of these men to bring about his promises. It is not uh, that God is approving of it, but he is using it. And so, once again, we see this theme. Nothing can thwart God. 
not an Amalekite, not the Philistines, not Joab, not Ishbosheth, not Rahab and Baanah. No one can thwart God. It is true then, and it is true now. Let me end here by uh, <clears throat> having us turn to Psalm 18. And in Psalm 18, you'll see in the title, this is one of the Psalms that David wrote, having to do with God helping him regarding his enemies, and here in particular, from the hand of Saul. Were Rechab and Ba'anah part of that? We don't know. But notice the end of the Psalm. Okay. Psalm 18, okay. verse 46. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, that the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and God, we thank you again for your word, and we are thankful, Lord, for this word we have just read, that you are our God, that you rule over all things, and there is nothing that can thwart you. And you're the one who establishes your people. You did it for David. You do it for us. May we rest in this truth. But as we do that, may we also seek to live justly, righteously. None of us may ever be in a position of authority like David. But certainly we do have um, positions in which you place us where we can ensure justice, that we can ensure righteousness, as David did here in this way, help us to do so in various ways where you place us, that we would not allow evil to continue, but to seek to establish our workplace, our homes, our societies that are based on your truth and your justice and your law. And so we pray, Lord, for your help in this way, that you would be honored and that everyone would be blessed. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.